is just a quick message to let you know that Elucidations now has a blog. Check it out at Lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu slash blogs slash elucidations. Check it out. Let us know what you think. Welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast ordinarily recorded at the University of Chicago, but which today is being brought to you from Amsterdam. I'm Matt Teichman, and with us today is Katarina dutil Novais, Assistant Professor and Rosalind Franklin Fellow in Theoretical Philosophy at the University of Groningen, and she's here to talk with us about methods in philosophy. Katarina dutil Novais, welcome. Well, thank you. Thank you for uh, inviting me for this podcast. So over the course of the history of philosophy, philosophers have traditionally used all sorts of different methods to pursue the questions they want to pursue. What are some examples of different methods that different philosophers have used to try to give answers to the questions they're asking? Okay, well, as I see it, looking not only at past work in philosophy, but also at present work in philosophy, there are four kinds of methodologies that I'm particularly interested in. So I'm not saying that these are the only methodologies that are that have been used and that are interesting, but uh, these are the ones that I'm particularly interested in. And in any case, I think they really cover a lot of the methodological approaches that we see uh, philosophers adopting now and also in the past. And these four methods that I'm interested in, the first group is the most difficult to define, actually, because that would be sort of like traditional philosophical methods, as in a priori reflection, conceptual reflection, and that includes conceptual analysis. So for example, the, the Socratic exercise of actually trying to define what we mean with the terms that we employ in regular situations, so the typical questions like what is time, what is knowledge, what is language, etc. So that would be conceptual analysis, but there's also the part of conceptual production, so the production of new concepts that could be useful for philosophical uh, discussions and analysis. And also of deductive reasoning, so like so drawing inferences, right? So deducing conclusions from certain premises. All this belongs to this first category that I sort of call it the traditional philosophical methods. And the sort of the underlying characteristic is really that it's these are a priori methods, right? So they uh, rely on a priori reflection that doesn't need to engage with any external material, and they are also conducted in ordinary languages, right? Of course, regimented ordinary languages and of course with a lot of jargon, but still basically sort of just ordinary languages. So that would be the first group. The second group that I'm interested in is what you could call formal methods. And this consists in the application of logical and mathematical formalisms to investigate philosophical problems. And the examples I could cite is, for example, uh, the use of possible world semantics to account for the concepts of necessity and uh, possibility, right? So this formal framework, which was developed by Kripke, but then meant to give an account, a technical account of the notions of necessity and possibility. And so these are, would be sort of the formal approaches. Then the third group would be the historical approaches. And by this, I don't mean the study of the history of philosophy as such, as a goal in and of itself. I mean the use of the history of philosophy to understand and discuss certain concepts that are relevant to us now, right? philosophically relevant to us now. And here, 
it sort of comes close to what some people in, in continental philosophy uh, do under the heading of genealogy and archaeology, right? So Nietzschean genealogy and Foucault archaeology. Uh, so that's that kind of thing. But it doesn't have to be only in this framework, right? I think that also in analytic philosophy, there's a lot to be gained from contextualizing historically a particular problem, a particular concept, a particular question that you ask yourself. So that I call this also sometimes I refer to this kind of approach as conceptual archaeology. And then these are histories where the, the protagonists are not people, not authors, but rather concepts or problems or questions. So you just retrace the question, the, the history of a particular concept. And myself, I've done quite a bit of this, in particular with respect to the concept of form and formal in connection with logic. So I really went back to understand why is it that we say that logic is formal? and right, go all the way back to Aristotle and see what happens after Aristotle, because Aristotle himself never used the concept of form with respect to logic, so that happened after him. So I was interested in this history so that I could understand what it means now to say that logic is form. And the fourth group is what, well, it's sort of picking up in popularity. It would be the, the so-called empirically informed methods in philosophy. The general idea is to turn to uh, these results and data assembled by the empirical sciences and the social sciences in order to inform the philosophical discussions, right? So this general framework is sometimes referred to as naturalism, right? So the naturalist conceptions of philosophy. I think the title is a little bit misleading because naturalism has been used in too many senses in philosophy and it's just not helpful anymore. And many of the so-called naturalistic approaches are, to my taste, not really very naturalistic. So, I mean, you know, Quine was always, uh, he paid lip service to how beautiful it would be to have a continuum between philosophy and science. But in practice, there isn't that much science really being taken into account in his philosophical discussions. But anyway, so that this would be the general idea. And this would really be, the, the general premise would be that uh, philosophers should really be reading journals, say, in cognitive science, in psychology, in biology, and et cetera, et cetera, really to be uh, abreast of the latest developments in these fields and inform their philosophical analysis when relevant with these findings from the sciences, that both the empirical sciences and the social sciences. And this has been picking up, gaining in popularity in the, in the last couple of years, especially in philosophy of mind. So that's really exciting, like a, lo a lot of uh, interaction between philosophers of mind and uh, cognitive psychologists and uh, cognitive scientists and psychologists, et cetera, et cetera. So these would be the four methods that I am personally more interested in. Okay, so we've got a number of different methods on the table here, four in particular. The conceptual analysis approach, where you uh, think about what a certain term means and then try to reason based on certain basic facts about what a term means that nobody would deny. You know, arrive at a conclusion on some philosophical question on that basis. You've got uh, another approach, the formal approach, where you want to give an account of a philosophical concept, but really understand it as a kind of mathematical structure and bring uh, some of the methods that mathematicians use to bear on it. You have the historical approach, uh, which is given some philosophical question, let's think about how various influential people in bygone eras have thought about that question and what's the difference between the way they think about that question and the way we think about that question now and how can that help us answer the question now? And that would be the historical approach. And then finally, there's uh, this empirical method where philosophers look to recent scientific findings to try and inform the, uh, their questions they're investigating. 
Maybe we could see some of these methods in action by taking a look at an example of a philosophical problem and then, I don't know, maybe contrast what would be one approach to the problem versus another approach to the problem. Okay. So there are two topics that I've been working on in the last couple of years. One is the research that I'm just really concluding at the moment on formal languages. And the new research project is on deduction. And in both cases, I'm, I think the questions that are raised are questions that can be investigated from these different vantage points, right? So let me focus on deduction then. So that's my new research project. So there are all these philosophical questions, right, that pertain to the concept of deduction, like all these puzzles. I mean, on the one hand, deduction seems like a really simple thing, right? I mean, well, you know, an argument is deductively valid if from the premises, the conclusion follows of necessity, necessarily, right? It could not but follow. It seems like really simple, and yet there are all these philosophical questions about deduction that are still unanswered. So for example, if that's the case, then there's a sense in which the conclusion is already contained in the premises. So in what sense is a deductive argument informative? Right? I mean, in what sense you actually gain new knowledge when you perform a deductive reasoning if the conclusion is already contained in the premise? So this is a philosophical question about the concept of deduction. Then to give an example of a historical question about on the concept of deduction is precisely that one thing that is, I think, very important to ask ourselves is where does the concept of deduction come from? So in a sense, you could say, well, what do you mean? It's always been around. But no, it hasn't always been around. It's a thoroughly theoretical concept which had to be developed in a very long tradition of <clears throat> thinking about logic and developing methods for scientific inquiry. I think it's very important for us to like, go back to the historical development of the deductive method, also to understand what the deductive method really means to us, right? even now. So the genealogy in this sense of also, of course, the differences, rather right, the changes that have taken place uh, through time, but also to what extent we are still largely in debt to the origins, the original conception of deduction that emerged in uh, Greek uh, mathematics and philosophy, right? so way back in the fifth century before Christ. So this would be the historical question about deduction. And then the cognitive question about deduction, which would require empirically informed methods to be used, is really to what extent do human reasoners actually rely on patterns of inference that are close enough to the patterns of the deductive canon? Right? So this is an empirical question. Right? Philosophers often just take for granted that obviously we, all, all of us around, we're all de reasoning deductively all the time. But this is simply not the case. So this has been extensively investigated in the psychology of reasoning literature of the last many decades, since the 60s already. And it's becoming completely clear that human reasoners most of the time are not following the precepts of the deductive canon in order to reason about prosaic matters and even in theoretical contexts. So then the question arises, two questions arise. To what extent is deductive reasoning really grounded in human rationality and in human cognition in a sort of straightforward way, right? So in, a, in terms of continuity. And to what extent, then, if there isn't indeed that much of a continuity, where is this coming from then? And what does it take for a person to become a, a competent deductive reasoner? Right? So these are empirical questions, right? They can be treated from an empirically informed point of view. And then again, even the formal methods, of course, for deduction, deduction also requires the use of formal methods to be investigated because you have different logical approaches that have been proposed which aim at accounting for the concept of deduction or the concept of logical consequence, which are closely related. 
So, I mean, there's a proof theoretical approach, there's a model theoretical approach. I mean, the details don't matter too much, but just to say that they're competing formal accounts of the notion of deduction, and there's a lot of technical formal work that can be done there too to clarify the concept. So then you see this one concept that really almost begs to be approached from these different angles. Okay, so maybe we can have an example of a deductive argument? Yes, so the example that I usually give, I mean, there can be so many, but so all dogs are mammals, Fido is a dog, these are the premises, conclusion, therefore Fido is a mammal. Fido cannot but be a mammal, he cannot fail to be a mammal given the truth of the premises. So that's the idea of a deductive argument. The worry that we began with was something like, if all the information you need to get to the conclusion of the argument is kind of already contained in the premises, What's the work of drawing a deductive inference? What's um, the gain, right? What's the benefit of actually drawing a deductive inference since there seems to be no gain of information? And that's something uh, where it would be helpful not only to ask questions like, well, how do people's minds actually work and do they actually follow these reasoning patterns, but where did this interest we have in the process of deductive reasoning come from? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, all these different questions, but as it turns out, and so you might think that deduction requires to be looked into from these different angles, but they don't necessarily need to talk to each other. And this is exactly where I think that it's very important to keep in mind that an integrative methodology is likely to make much more progress. So, for example, the philosophical question of the informativeness of a deductive reasoning, right? This is a philosophical question, but as I see it, there's a cognitive angle to this question which will give you an answer, right? Which has to do with the notion of uh, cognitive biases, which is a notion that is very uh, prominent in the psychology literature. So the cognitive biases are ten cognitive tendencies that we have that deviate from some sort of external norm, for example, the canons of deductive reasoning. And then the systematic deviations from it are referred to as biases. And then, as it turns out, I mean, that has come out of this whole literature of this body of research in psychology, we, we have all these tendencies, and in a sense, the deductive method can act as a counterbalance that's my claim, right? So, I mean, that's sort of one of the core hypotheses of the new research project, that is that it can act as a counterbalance. So then the usefulness of a deductive argument is put under a different light, right? Purely philosophically, it might look like it's not very useful because there's no real gain of information. You might think, well, then what's the use of a, of a deductive reasoning? But if you look at it from a cognitive point of view, you see that the usefulness may be precisely to counter these cognitive biases that really permeate our sort of more spontaneous modes of reasoning. So in that sense, the philosophical question is answered, or at least partially answered, by bringing in these empirical elements too. So I mean, the idea really is that many of these questions, they not only benefit from being uh, looked at from these four different angles, but in fact, these different angles have to be talking to each other, and that's when you will really be able to make progress with at least some philosophical questions. Okay, right, so it's not just that philosophers ought to pursue all of these approaches sort of alongside one another. You know, you could imagine a philosophy department with two professors who do formal stuff and uh, another two professors who do historical stuff and so on and so forth, where it's really more like kind of four different philosophy departments nominally under the heading of one. But what you're recommending is not just that all of these methods be pursued simultaneously, but that they be combined so that they can reinforce one another. Yeah, this is in any case, I mean, as is clear by now, 
I really uh, defend what could be described as methodological pluralism in philosophy. So I mean a, a plurality of methods that are all legitimate as means for philosophical inquiry, but you could still distinguish between two kinds of methodological pluralism. What you could call disjunctive pluralism or conjunctive pluralism. And the disjunctive pluralism would be the idea that you sort of just described, which is that these methods are practiced and deployed alongside each other. So it's either this or that or that other method. Right? They're all okay, but it's disjunctive. The position that I endorse is really the other one, so the conjunctive pluralism position. And that's really, as you just described, the idea that not only should these different methods be pursued alongside each other, but they should really be talking to each other. They should really, really be informing each other's investigations. And that's when things are really likely to sort of become clearer from a philosophical point of view, at least with respect to, I think, a wide range of interesting and important philosophical topics. A lot of philosophers working today seem to have the worry that if philosophers start spending too much time borrowing methods from other disciplines, then philosophy will just sort of become a watered-down version of those other disciplines and lose its identity as uh, its own area of study. Do you think that that's a legitimate worry? or? Um so I think one thing that needs to be said is that this worry of demarcating a philosophy, delimitating the borders of philosophy with respect to other disciplines, is a recent worry. Right? The situation that you're just describing, you might think that, well, you know, the traditional conception of philosophy is this one, but that's just not true if you look at it historically. So Aristotle, for example, who is arguably, you know, still the most influential philosopher of all times. He was, most of all, a biologist. The core of his metaphysics is, as I see it, and I'm not a historian of ancient philosophy at all, but following people like Jim Hankinson and others, there's really the idea that the metaphysics of Aristotle is basically motivated by his biological investigations. So the very idea of the distinction between form and matter, this is a distinction that makes sense most of all in the biological context for Aristotle. And that got then in, uh, projected into metaphysics as a whole. But it's the original motivation is biological. And then if you look more, you know, in more recent times, you have people like Descartes and Leibniz who are both philosophers, but also mathematicians and physicists and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, this concern with demarcating philosophy from the other disciplines is very recent. And I really think that it's all to be traced back to Kant, ultimately. Kant is the person who really introduced what I call demarcational obsessions in philosophy. I mean, it became really important to know exactly where the boundaries of philosophy uh, lie and where philosophy starts and where the other disciplines end. In a sense, that's, I mean, there were, of course, Kant had very good reasons within his transcendental idealism project. He had very good reasons to insist on the demarcation of philosophy from the other disciplines. But if we don't buy the whole Kantian story, do we need to worry as much about this as he did? So in a sense, it's a relic from the Kantian program that we're still very much worried about, right? And I think that in a sense, by demarcating so sharply the boundaries between philosophy and other disciplines, what has happened is that philosophers have isolated themselves from other disciplines and have become largely sort of, you know, redundant in a sense that, they, you know, who are they talking to? If they're only talking to each other, in what sense is philosophical research having any impact in the bigger scheme of things, right? And so actually I think it's the other way around. We, we can become much more important precisely if we're more willing to engage with the other disciplines. If we don't, 
the tendency is for us to become more and more insulated from the rest, including from the rest of the humanities, and more and more the very uh, I purpose of a philosophy department, say in a, in a university, would become much less evident, right? So I think it's actually the very opposite. I think you're absolutely right to say that lots of philosophers have this worry, but as I see it, they would be uh, in a better position to secure their jobs and their funding if they were talking to people in other disciplines more systematically than they actually are. And I think that although it's true, like you said, that most philosophers are still very worried, in particular, they're very worried about the prominence of empirically informed methods in philosophy now. But I think there are quite a few philosophers that are very clear on how, for example, to discuss philosophy of mind. It's not even possible to ignore the latest findings from cognitive science and psychology, right? So I mean, what is philosophy of mind that is not empirically informed? Well, it, it becomes very, very speculative. And then, you know, you're just missing an opportunity of building bridges with people who are talking about very similar phenomena, after all, but from a different angle. You've been making the case that it's in the interest of philosophy to pay attention to what's happening in other areas of study. Do you think the converse follows? Do you think it's in the interest of people pursuing other approaches, for example, I don't know, a biologist or a chemist or an art historian, to pay attention to what's happening in philosophy? This is an excellent question. And of course, there's the, the, uh, the ought to answer and then there's the factual answer here, of course. Okay, let me start with uh, my personal experience on this then, right? In the last couple of years, I've really been very engaged with the psychology of reasoning, a literature, and some cognitive science as well. And I've got to meet many of the people working in these fields, really psychologists and cognitive scientists. And as it turns out, at least a few of them, but a significant number of them, are actually very interested in talking to me because they start realizing that a lot of the conceptual cornerstones of their investigations are actually quite muddy are actually quite imprecisely defined, and there's lack of clarity. So these people, right, the psychology of reasoning people, they've done so much investigation on deductive reasoning, but if you ask them what exactly is the notion of deduction, what exactly does it mean, they have issues giving you a proper, you know, a satisfactory definition. They might give you an example, but I mean, what does it mean? What is the conceptual definition of deduction? And you would think, wow, how could they, you know, do their research if they're not clear on this? And I think that philosophers can really contribute on the foundational level in terms of really sort of working out the details of the conceptual framework that the scientists are working with. Right? And the same holds in biology. So for example, philosophy of biology is now extremely, as I understand, I mean, it's not really my field, but I'm quite interested in it too. And it's really making a lot of progress in discussing concepts that are really crucial, say, for evolutionary research. So the concept of on what level, the evolutionary level that you should look at, right? So is it the level of the organism, or is it on the level of the genes, or is it on the level of the species? And this is to a great extent a philosophical discussion, and a discussion that requires that we're very clear on these concepts to start with to be able to have this discussion and philosophers can really help in terms of establishing this kind of clarity that I think you need so that the, the foundations of these sciences are, are less shaky. I mean, so that's the ought to part of the answer. Whether in fact scientists will be talking to philosophers, that's a different matter. And of course, 
to a great extent, sociologically speaking, we were by a large ignored by scientists. They don't really care about what we think. But in my experience, and also with mathematicians, I've been having a lot of interaction with mathematicians recently, and they really want to hear you know, what I, as a philosopher, have to say on some basic mathematical concepts. The other day, I wrote a blog post on consensus in mathematics. And then, all of a sudden, I had two Fields medalists commenting on my post. And I, like, for those who don't know, Fields Medal is like the Nobel Prize for mathematics. I mean, it's extremely prestigious, and it's only awarded every so many years, I think every four years. So I mean, I, I just couldn't believe my eyes when I had two uh, Fields medalists, so uh, Terry Tao and Timothy Gowers, actually commenting on my blog post, which was purely philosophical. So it, it's not true that they don't want to engage with us. I mean, at least some of them, I think, clearly are, have an interest in a philosophical discussion, as long as the philosophical discussion is sufficiently informed by the latest findings in their own field. So I, I really think there's hope for this to happen, but that's a lot up to us as philosophers too, to be you know, updated in what's going on in these fields. And I just want to mention that at least a few philosophers really publish regularly, both in philosophy journals and, say for example, philosophers of physics, who publish both in philosophy journals and in physics journals. Philosophers of biology, but also, so I mean, there are at least some philosophers that are truly making contributions also in the particular fields of inquiry outside philosophy. So I, yeah, I think you know, it can happen. It's not necessarily going to happen, but there's hope. Let's put it like that. Katerina Dutil-Novais, thank you very much for joining me. Okay, well, thanks a lot for the nice conversation. If you have any questions about this episode, you can post them to our blog at lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, dot uchicago, dot edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. On the blog, you can get background information on the topics we covered and join in the discussion. 